You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 103. This week, we come to the end. This will be our 14th and last episode on the Battle of the Somme, as we look at the two months of fighting in October and November. These would be rough months for all involved, not just because of the continued casualty rates, but also because of the weather that would be the bane of the men in the trenches. We will then close out this episode by doing a review of the costs of the five months of attacks on the Somme and what it had accomplished. Coming out of September, optimism on the British side was actually quite high. During the attacks in September, while they certainly had not met their lofty goals, they hadn't been complete failures like earlier efforts, so they hoped that they could build on that. This convinced Haig that the Germans were really close to complete complete collapse, He was not prepared to give the Germans any time to fully recover, and he was dead set on not making the mistake of coming within one step of victory after months of sacrifice and then calling off the attacks on the brink of success. Here are his thoughts in his own words. Quote, We had already broken through all of the enemy's prepared lines, and now only extemporized defenses stood between us and the Bapalm Ridge. Moreover, the enemy had suffered much in men, in material, and in morale, and if we rested even for a month, the enemy would be able to strengthen his defenses, to recover his equilibrium, to make good deficiencies, and worse still, to regain the initiative. The longer we rested, the more difficult would our problem again become. So in my opinion, we must continue to press the enemy to the utmost of our power. The plan was to keep attacking, and this would result in multiple attacks throughout October. After the end of October, these would continue, but with a different purpose. At some point, it became clear that the British no longer had the ability to decisively win the battle, or to punch through the German lines in any meaningful way. This caused a shift in focus, away from these quick wins, and instead to a long-term view into what might happen in 1917. Haig and Joffre both believed that they would recommence the battle in these exact same areas when spring arrived, but to do this, they needed to continue the attacks now at the end of 1916. Every tactical gain that they could make, every hill or wood or village that they could take during 1916, 
would be one less that they would have to deal with in 1917. This pushed the attacks forward again and again, as they were never satisfied with where they were and where they would have to stop for the winter. The cruelest irony of all of this, for the men involved at least, is that by the time that the spring did come, it didn't really matter at all, because the Germans would be gone. These type of attacks may have made some sense, if the Germans were as close to complete collapse as the British believed. So let's once again look at that question. The Germans had mounting problems on the Somme. The first was that the British were just, in general, getting much better at attacking the German positions. Haig was also correct that their positions by this point in the battle were not as good as they had been, or as well constructed as they were in September. The Germans were also simply running out of combat effective units. There was more to creating effective units than just having warm bodies in the trenches. As unit cohesion continued to drop, those units became less effective, less well-trained, less familiar with those around them, and the continued grind of sending units to the front repeatedly in a short period of time just kept making everything worse. The reasons for this are varied, and you could probably have a whole book looking at small unit cohesion in militaries around the world. But here is Lieutenant Wolfgang von Vormann of Infantry Regiment 268 to describe what he saw in his own unit. Quote, we have been terribly mauled once more, even worse than the last time. It is hardly to be wondered at because when we were a superb unit welded together by the experience we gained during the hard days of small-scale action, we had fought around the slag heaps of St. Pierre. Commanders and men knew and trusted one another absolutely. This time we were simply a mob of soldiers. We received good reinforcements from Germany, but the interval between the first and second deployments was just too short. We lacked the proven junior commanders, NCOs, and officers who could hold the troops together. We enjoyed good success this time too, but we were not brilliant. We beat off about 10 attacks, causing the British huge casualties, but we had to yield 500 meters of ground. By then we were at the end of our tether, but we were relieved just in time. There was also a change taking place in the German soldiers individually. The men that were in the trenches in October and November were just not the same as those in July, even if some of the men were actually physically still there. This change was most notable in their mental state. They became more detached from those around them and from their officers, as most of them were often just new replacements anyway, there from the latest draft. And this meant that the optimism of earlier in the year was no longer present. Here's the commander of a battalion who would write in a formal report to his regimental commander that, quote, The daily returns of the past few days have seen a great increase in the number of reports stating that the strength of the troops is declining. Quite apart from the number of direct battle casualties, the number of sick, those reduced to unfit after being buried alive, the cases of diarrhea, and those suffering from great depression are mounting to such an extent that I regard it as my duty to bring this matter to your attention. This is a problem that the Germans would have to try and solve. Their, their units were falling apart, their men at being stuck on the defensive forever were just not as gung-ho as they once were. While the will of the British troops and their commanders was still set on continuing the attacks, and while the Germans may have been running out of the ability to resist, more attacks were slowed significantly by the onset of bad weather. The first four days of October were filled with rain, endless and cold, 
and that would prove to be just the beginning. This lengthy period of bad weather actually started later than usual, and September had been abnormally dry towards the end, and this had helped the British in continuing their attacks the previous month. But now in October, it seemed that Mother Nature was trying to make up for lost time, and the rain turned the sun battlefield into a sea of mud. In such conditions, it was impossible for other side to keep any semblance of health and fitness standards. British Staff Officer Lord Gort would report after viewing conditions at the front that the men were living on cold food and standing up to their knees in mud and water. He would also report that many were afflicted by trench foot and were certainly in no condition to continue the attack. As October continued to get worse, by the time November arrived, there was another challenge in addition to just the rain, because of the decrease in temperatures. This resulted in rainy days and cold nights that were hitting below freezing, which played complete hell with the men's health and morale. In early November, the commander of the 14th Corps would reply when ordered to attack that, quote, no one who has not visited the front trenches can really know the state of exhaustion to which the men have been reduced. This situation was just as bad on the German side as well, with Graffiter Fritsch writing that, we are living in mud holes. There is filth on all of our clothing, on all of our food, on all of our hands. Firing goes on ceaselessly. Everyone is exhausted by the approach march. One German battalion would report about how difficult it was for the men to simply create and maintain any kind of defensive positions in the mud. Quote, everything possible is being done to maintain the collapsed and unconnected trench system, but the term trench is illusory. A line can barely be detected. The entire garrison down to the last man is fully occupied in ceaseless work to dig out what little remains. Those involved are literally stuck fast in the mud, so the useful work obtained in proportion to the energy expended is only slight. The gluey mud sticks to the shovels and is difficult to shake off. While the weather made it bad at the front, miserable is probably the word I would use, it also had an effect on the artillery. We have discussed many times how important the artillery was for any attack to be successful, and during October and November it became extremely difficult to maintain that level of artillery support. There was a nearly insolvable problem of how to get the thousands and thousands of shells to the gun lines when everything was so muddy. Horses and mules could not move through it, trucks bogged down immediately, men had tons of problems just moving through without shells on their back. And even if the shells could have found their way to the gun lines somehow, the artillery found its ability to move to new positions to support advances to be almost non-existent. Here is one artilleryman describing how long it took to move the guns. Quote, orders received at 11 a.m. gave me three hours to pass a certain crossroads, but although we started getting the guns out as soon as the teams arrived, my last vehicle only managed to clear the point in question at 6 p.m. the following day. By November, it was basically impossible to bring a gun to the rear for repairs, or to bring replacements forward. So instead of moving batteries off the lines with their guns for repairs and replacements, new artillery batteries were told to leave their guns to the rear, and instead they would just rotate the men through the same guns to keep them firing. This had obvious negative effects on the ability of the guns to continue firing, as they slowly wore out, broke down, or were disabled by enemy fire. 
It also had a perceptible negative effect on the morale of artillery units, as Lieutenant Kenneth Meeling of the Royal Field Artillery explains. Quote, we got our orders to leave horses and guns and to take our gunners and officers up to the line to take over the battery we were to relieve. We knew it meant handing over our good, well-tended weapons for old, filthy, worn-out guns, and we didn't like it. A subaltern from the other battery arrived to guide us up. We didn't quite like the undue haste he showed to get us up there, nor his relief at handing over. In fact, he gave the impression that all he wanted was to get away as quickly as possible. The only good news for the British was that these same factors affected the German artillery as well, although in general they always experienced them to a lesser degree, because they were retreating onto areas that were far less destroyed by previous artillery bombardments, while the British were moving right on top of the destruction that they had rained down themselves in earlier attacks. Another bit of bad news for the British artillery was problems for the Royal Flying Corps. During the last few months of the fighting on the Somme, the British began to lose their aerial superiority, which they had enjoyed for pretty much the entire battle. This was due to a combination of German aircraft finally being moved off of the Verdun front, and also to the introduction of a new series of German scout planes, in the form of the Albatross D-1. This new plane completely outclassed anything that the British could put in the air, because it had two machine guns firing through the propellers, each of which could put out 1,600 rounds per minute. This at a time when most British scout planes were still using Lewis guns with their 47-round drum magazines, generally mounted on the upper wing. This would put the British artillery in a position that they had not had to deal with much on, on the Somme, and that was being observed from the air and feeling the power of air-directed counter-battery fire. Here is Captain William Bloor explaining what happened to his unit. Quote, enemy airplanes were very active and flew over our batteries at a great altitude. Very soon, an intense bombardment with 5.9-inch and 8-inch guns started on the Devil Valley, no doubt directed by their planes. We escaped lost, but my old battery had a direct hit on E-gun, killing the detachment. B, uh, battery 149 lost two guns and several men, and another one had a direct 8-inch hit on a gun. A terrible day for my poor brigade. Unfortunately for the British, German command of the air would not be ending anytime soon. And you can expect a lot more discussions about the air warfare next year when we have some focused episodes on it. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Throughout October the, and through the early part of November, the attacks continued, with the several attacks launched during this time. Regardless of the problems with the weather, they just kept going forward. These attacks made some progress, and the line was pushed forward, but always at such a high cost. This would continue until November the 18th, when the last major attack was launched. This would be made by the men of the 5th Army, under General Goff, which had previously been the Reserve Army. It got uh, renamed uh, once it got put into the line. General Goff was one of the ones who, one of the leading voices among the British generals advocating for more and more attacks. Peter Hart would say at this time that Goff seems to have been caught up in the kind of frenzy that afflicts gamblers unwilling to accept, accept defeat. Just one more throw of the dice might rescue the situation. We just gotta try one more time, guys. He was able to convince Haig that an attack on the 18th was a good idea, even though Haig was a bit concerned about the prospects of success. On that day, the 2nd and 5th Corps would go forward, and would end up, and what would end up happening due to the weather was somewhat tragic. When I hear about the weather, I can't help but feel that the situation was just impossible. Here's Private C. Reuben Smith of the 18th Division to explain. It was snowing hard and freezing and pitch dark. We were guided by the star shells from the firing line. It was impossible to follow the trench and too risky to get in it. I did get in one once and got stuck up to my waist in mud and ice-cold water. The water in the trench had a covering of ice about an inch thick and snow on top of it. But as soon as your weight was on it, in you went. That was enough for me. The snow that had been falling overnight was replaced by freezing rain and then sleet and then normal rain, just a cocktail of wintry nastiness throughout the day, which just seems completely miserable to me and it sounds like the infantrymen uh, were of the same opinion. Here is Private Arthur Wrench to describe what it was like. The suffering is terrible, and some of the men are about mad with the cold and the exposure. Snow in the morning followed by rain all day has made things pitiable. What I am seriously thinking now is that those boys lying stiff and cold all around Beaumont Hamill, insensible to it all, are perhaps lucky and better off now than we are. This is what is called dying for your country, but it's actually selling your soul to a few profiteers for a shilling and being massacred to satisfy their selfish purposes, and they call it war, and a legitimate thing at that. This I should point out that this view, very negative view, about what the British were doing is, is not typical, um, but there were certainly soldiers who, who thought that way. With the failure of this attack, the inevitable failure, the main efforts on the Somme, after four and a half months of fighting, were over. While we can look back and say for certainty that November the 18th was the last attack, 
It was not as if there was a huge sign that appeared on the battlefield telling everyone that this round was over and they could stop fighting now. However, it became clear to both sides that they were now settling into winter fighting, and commanders on both sides would write about what they saw for the months ahead. Rawlinson believed that his troops had reached the absolute end of their abilities. He would report the following, quote, All of the divisions allotted to the 4th Army for the winter operations have taken part in the Battle of the Somme twice, most of them three or four times. They have had very heavy losses, amounting in some cases to 7,000 to 10,000 men, and have suffered very severely in officers, NCOs, and specialists. Experience proves that after severe periods of fighting, in which divisions have had heavy losses, the time taken by a battalion to recover and regain its state of efficiency depends almost entirely on what nucleus of trained officers and NCOs remain to train and weld together the old and new elements. In every offensive action that is carried out, an ever-increasing toll is taken on these priceless instructors, and if battalions are bled dry, there is serious risk of lowering the standard of fighting efficiency to a point which may render doubtful the success of the operations in the coming spring campaign. This is actually important, and what Rawlinson is describing here is exactly what I was talking about with the German units earlier, where this nucleus of people who could rebuild uh, these units were just disappearing, like they weren't there anymore. So it was really hard for units to recover when they didn't have these experienced officers and and NCOs to sort of guide what were pretty raw recruits um, arriving as replacements. On the German side, Ludendorff, in one of his pessimistic musings, would take a rather bleak view of both, both what had happened on the Somme and what it meant for the German army going forward. Quote, We had to bear in mind that the enemy's great superiority in men and material would even more painfully be felt in 1917 than in 1916. They had to face the danger that some fighting would soon break out on, a, on various points of the front, and that even our troops would not be able to withstand such attacks indefinitely, especially if the enemy gave us no time to rest and to accumulate material. Our position was uncommonly difficult, and a way out hard to find. We could not contemplate an offensive ourselves, having to keep our reserves available for defense. There was no hope of a collapse of any of the Entente powers. If the war lasted, our defeat seemed inevitable. Economically, we were in a highly unfavorable position for a war of exhaustion. At home, our strength was badly shaken. Questions of the supply of foodstuffs caused great anxiety, and so too did questions of morale. We were not undermining the spirits of the enemy populations with with starvation blockades and propaganda, so the future looked dark. Ludendorff sometimes goes on these very negative sort of tangents um, when he's writing Um, which is funny because he's the one who will end up leading Germany for the rest of the war. In terms of total casualty numbers, there are some numbers that are very solid, like the sum of British casualties coming in at 419,654, which seems extremely and very oddly specific, but it is the exact number that is used in all of the sources that I've seen. This is a staggeringly large number, but it's just one piece of the puzzle. On the French side, the number is less solid, but they seem to hover around 200,000, with some numbers being a bit below or some a bit above it. When we get to the German numbers, things start to vary wildly. The Allies estimated uh, 
them at about 650,000, which is almost certainly way too high. The official German history puts the number at 500,000, which most historians still think is too high. For more recent accountings, I've seen numbers ranging from like 235,000 to 430,000, which is a pretty wide margin, and let's be honest, and my guess is the truth is probably somewhere in between that, and that feels right, I guess. It's funny that we don't have uh, super specific numbers. While the numbers are not perfectly certain, though, there is one thing that is certain. They are very large. There's a lot of zeros in all those numbers. I think it's important to put them in context, though. Uh, For example, even with the casualties on the Somme and Verdun and the other fronts, the Germans still lost more men total during 1915 than in 1916, which seems a little crazy, considering how much we've talked about the Germans fighting this year. For the French and Germans, their casualty rates had been much higher in 1914, and for all three armies, their casualties would also be much higher in the last six months of the war. I wanted to mention that not to minimize the, ca- the sacrifices of the men on the Somme. It's incredibly tragic that there was a million casualties for what amounted to a few square miles of territory on either side of a river in France that most people had never heard of. Regardless of any other battles... For the British, this one would go down as the greatest military tragedy in the history of the British Army. It quickly became apparent that the battle was different than the others, and not just because men were dying in staggering numbers, but they also seemed to be accomplishing nothing. It was made just worse by the fact that this was the first large action for that first group of the most eager British volunteers, who had flocked to volunteer stations in late 1914. That such optimism, enthusiasm, and patriotism was wasted on the Somme is one part of the story that is often retold, focusing especially on the PALS battalions of July 1st and the cruel fate that awaited most of them on the battlefield. John Keegan would explain partially why these groups are often put in such focus. The regiments of PALS and CHUMS, which had their first experience of war on the Somme, have been called an army of innocence, and that, in their readiness to offer up their lives in circumstances not anticipated in the heady days of volunteering, it undoubtedly was. Whatever harm Kitchener's volunteers wished the Germans, it is the harm they thereby suffered that remains in British memory, collectively but also among the families of those who did not return. There is nothing more poignant in British life than to visit the ribbon of cemeteries that mark the front line of the 1st of July 1916, and to find on gravestone after gravestone the fresh wreath, the face of a pal or chum above a khaki serge collar, staring gravely back from a dim photograph, the pinned poppy and the inscription to a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather. The sum marked the end of an age of vital optimism in British life that has never been recovered. The sum would, in many ways, become the battle of the war for the British, like Verdun was for the French, or Gallipoli for the Australians, or Vimy Ridge for the Canadians. It was not the most costly in terms of casualties. It was certainly not at the top of my list in terms of human suffering and overall pointlessness. That honor certainly has to be given to Passchendaele. But its hold on the British consciousness endures to this day in a way that is somewhat impressive. 
For the Germans, the Somme had been another costly defense in a year of costly defenses. When it became clear in December that the British were not going to continue their attacks, Crown Prince Ruprecht would write to his troops that, quote, operations appear to have come to a halt in the Battle of the Somme. It is not clear when or if they will be resumed. I'm making use of this pause to express my gratitude to and recognition of all commanders and troops. The battle lasted almost five months, exploiting their numerical superiority and deploying an extraordinary quantity of material. The enemy sought to break through and attacked repeatedly. In the face of the heroic courage displayed by the first and second armies, each attempt failed. The only gain being a narrow strip of utterly ruined terrain. Everyone who was there can be proud to have been a warrior on the Somme. The greatest battle of the war, perhaps the greatest of all time, has been won. Each individual man may be assured that he has the thanks of the fatherland. It's entirely due to the fact that our front on the Somme remained unbroken, that we have been able in the meantime to defeat Romania. Romania. My thanks is also due to the other fronts of the army group, fully recognizing the situation. The 6th and 7th armies self-sacrificially kept their demands to a minimum, released every available man and item of material, and accepted the greatest difficulties so as to support the fighting on the Somme. While they may have held the line, though, the Germans on the Somme sacrificed what had been left of the old German army, what was left after the first years of fighting in Verdun, anyway. While there were still men in the line, they, and they were still resisting, and, and that wouldn't end, the, the casualties were beginning to change the German army. Never again would the German army be as good, with morale as high, as it had been when entering 1916. Even in the heady days of spring 1918, they would never be as effective. In his book, Through, Through German Eyes, Christopher Duffy would explain a bit of why this was the case. The best and longest enduring type of German soldier emerged from the grinder to all appearances unbroken and healthy. What they could not see was that inside he had become another man. He knew nothing of it himself. His psychological constitution had become more sensitive to the effects of battle, and his resiliency had diminished. End quote. If you consider what the Germans accomplished as a win on the Somme, with the definition of winning in the classical battle sense being the defender still holding the ground, really, battles like the Somme, if they kept happening, would mean the Germans were winning their way to defeat. The question that seems like everybody has been asking for the last century is not whether or not the Germans won, but whether or not all of the British and French effort on the Somme actually accomplished anything. This seems to be a question that has fluctuated about as much as casualty estimates. After the war, it was told strictly as a tragedy and a complete waste of time, effort, and most importantly, men. But with distance came perspective, and most historians now consider it a critical step, although a costly one, on the long road to wearing down the German army. At the end of the war, it would be manpower problems that would cause the Germans to eventually lose, and losing 300,000 men as casualties on the Somme certainly didn't help their long-term prospects. That is not to say that there were not giant, massive, horrible mistakes made on the Somme, or that there may not have been better ways to spend the summer of 1916. However, the attrition afflicted upon the German army, 
coupled with the lessons that the British Army learned on the battlefield and how they were able to use those lessons to their great benefit in the future, that's what long wars are. As cold-hearted as it may sound, they are a long series of battles that represent a compendium of lessons to be learned and a bill to pay in the form of lives. If these did not need to be done, then there would not be long wars like the First World War was. And overall, the Somme is a critical step for the British Army to turn into the machine that it turned into by 1918. On that somber note, our Somme episodes have come to an end. Although we will revisit this battlefield next year when we discuss the evolution of the war in the air. This also brings us to the end of our episodes for 2016. It's been a long year, the year of the great battles, and our episode structure has been different than what I had planned. You can expect a lot more jumping around to various theaters and topics next year, as half of our episodes will not be focused on just two battles. There will also be a 1916 retrospective episode, but it will be delayed until next spring, as there are a few more important stories to tell before we can really put 1916 in perspective. Over the next month, you can expect a special episode to discuss our path forward along with a very special announcement. And as always, as we come now to the holiday season, thank you for listening. I hope you will join me in a little over a month when the history of the Great War continues, and I hope you have a very pleasant holiday.